welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vicini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. Spins is here to break down the race for the number three overall prospect in the 2023 NBA draft. Going to be a really fun talking point throughout the season. And as you're going to hear from us throughout this discussion, it's a wide open race. There's just no other way to put it. It it is completely wide open. This is not something that we're going to have set in stone right now by any stretch of the imagination, just because there are so many prospects I think worth considering. I do want to start in a different place before we get in there that I haven't really talked to you about yet. So that's going to be fun. I like to surprise you on the show. Um, But then we're going to move into tank watch, which is a topic we haven't really gotten into over the course of the last few weeks on this show, because we've just been doing different things. We did the redraft last week. We did feast week recap the week before, which was just so many games to cover. So I'm excited to dive into tank watch and kind of look into the teams that might be positioning themselves toward the top of the NBA draft picture this year. And we have a surprise team in there as well that we're going to break down. Then finally, we haven't done prospects of the week in a couple of weeks either. So we double dip this week. Adam has two guys. I have two guys that we're going to talk about as prospects that we think are on the rise and are really, really worth tracking here as we move forward throughout the season. That's a minute and a half of me talking spins. Introduce yourself. What's going on, buddy? It's good to see you. Hey, Sam. Happy Sunday night here from me in the States. Monday morning for you over there. Uh, another pretty good week of hoops. Uh, this has been a long one for me. I know I sent out a, a tweet on Saturday afternoon, like a little bit less from me in terms of the workload, the constant tweeting this past week. My, my team had four games, uh, so we, we had a, quite the busy schedule, but finals and exams for a lot of our guys right now, taking those you know middle part of the year uh, reprieve. So this is going to be a busy few days for me, diving into film the last few games that uh, maybe haven't gotten to over the weekend. Looking forward to a few and a few projects coming up. But more than that, I think a really relevant topic right now with uh, the race for number three, because we've seen a couple players return from injury. We have, you know, with the, the blowing up of the college basketball season, maybe some of the guys like the Thompson Twins who aren't playing in college basketball right now, they get moved to the back burner because they're not the prospects that are in uh, plain sight, so to speak. So, a lot of great things that we can hit on here tonight. I think a fantastic topic and something that I don't really have a clear answer on. So it'll be fun to kind of not just debate each other, but debate ourselves as we try to figure out who the the top guys are. So as we do this, I just want to start here. How many players in this draft class as a whole do you feel really, really like truly good that you can say are maybe not surefire? We don't know with, Injury records, we don't know, you know, some background intel yet. But how many players in this class do you genuinely feel like you can say with almost certainty that those guys are first round picks in this class? Wow. All right. You did put me on the spot here <laughs> right early. So I'm, I'm bringing up my, uh, my big board and, and rankings and kind of note sheets that I have right now. I'm looking at about 17 guys that I feel comfortable with having right in that range and and don't feel like they're going to fall out of that by the end of the year. 17 is the number I'm at. Okay. I'm even lower. 
I am at currently 13 is my number. Um, the names here, are obviously, Victor Wembanyama and Scoot Henderson. The Thompson Twins, Cam Whitmore, Nick Smith. That gets us to six. Anthony Black would be seven. Cason Wallace, eight. Brandon Miller, nine. I'm specifically not reading these guys in order for a reason. Uh, I think Keontae George probably ends up there, so 10. Gigi Jackson, 11. Jet Howard, 12. Dariq Whitehead would be 13. I still feel pretty good that Dariq ends up in the first round somewhere. We've seen some flashes over the course of this past week that makes me think as he continues to work his way into shape, coming back from the foot injury, that everything's going to be okay with him. But like, for instance, you talk to teams about Kyle Filipowski at Duke, they're all over the map, just straight up, right? Talk to teams about Kansas swing, Grady Dick. They're all over the map. They're really worried about his defense. You talk to teams about, uh, Khalil Ware. They're worried about just like the production at the end of the day. Is he going to produce enough? Is he going to play enough in Oregon this year? Uh, you talk to teams about Nikola Jurisic. Is he going to be able to defend at the NBA level? You talk to teams about Jordan Hawkins. They'll tell you about the fact that, oh, is he going to measure above six foot four without shoes on? Uh, Bryce Sensabaugh, can he defend? Terquavion Smith, can he be, uh, efficient enough? Like there are just a number of questions throughout this class right now, when you talk to scouts across the league, that it's just really, really, really hard to nail down beyond that like top group of 12 to 13 guys, I think, uh, in this class that makes it just a really fun class. Like every scout I talk to right now is just like, we're just out here trying to find kids. Like yeah. this year, it seems pretty wide open in comparison to other seasons. One thing that they've kind of talked about is that the recruiting rankings this year, like coming into the year, sometimes those can act as like a general watch list for NBA front offices, right? Uh, not necessarily a ranking. NBA front offices absolutely do their own rankings. They do not use you know, recruiting services to start the ranking services, right? Or to start their rank throughout the year. But they use it as a guide for who they have to get eyes on. And one thing that they're kind of coming back to me with is like, you know, some of the guys at the top of the rankings aren't quite as impressive as we'd hoped. We're finding more luck than usual in the middle of the rankings with guys like Donovan Klingon, Bryce Sensabaugh, Taylor Jenkins, or Taylor Hawkins, Taylor Hendricks, good Lord my brain um, we're finding more luck than normal looking through guys in that area that we kind of like more than we expected. Jet Howard would be another guy that really stands out there. I think he was a borderline top 50 guy. So it's interesting that we're in this place now where it does seem like scouts throughout the country yeah, they always do due diligence like this, but this year it feels like they're really hunting and trying to find guys because the guys that were expected to step up were not quite as elite as expected. And the returning class in this NBA draft just was not something that many NBA scouts were excited about to begin with. Right. Yeah, I think that's a huge part of this, that there aren't those upperclassmen or sophomores coming back that really have the gravitational pull to really get scouts excited and say, you know, I, I had really high hopes for this guy coming back 
and proving that he can be a first-round pick without a shadow of a doubt. I think the other reason for this, Sam, college basketball, you win when you're old. And there are, yeah. there are a lot of older players in college basketball still thanks to you know, the COVID year and extra eligibility that a lot of these teams have, the, the growth of the transfer portal. So it's a lot easier to play uh, an upperclassman-laden team, and that means younger guys don't have the same margin for error. I mean, one quick example that pops to the top of my mind here is at Duke in the front court there with Derek Lively kind of ceding minutes to a f- transfer from Northwestern that John Shire can really rely on. So when you have older options available, there's there's going to be just less of a margin for error for some of these young guys. makes it really harder for them to produce. I think the same thing can be said for Khalil Ware. You know, uh, this, it's where college basketball is at, and it makes it much more challenging, particularly early in the season, to get a great feel for who's going to be those one-and-done prospects by the end of this thing. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's a really, really interesting draft class because of that. And it's one where I think it's going to be interesting to track what teams kind of find those diamonds in the rough. Like, I, I wonder if this is a year where the quote unquote pre-draft process ends up being pretty extensive with teams feeling like, oh, like we found this diamond in the rough. We really like this guy. We're really, you know, super high on this player, X player, Y player, right? Let's try and shut him down early because we feel like we have a better evaluation on him than other teams do. Uh, It's a real eye of the beholder year. I I wouldn't be surprised to see that at all at the end of the day. But that's not why we're here. We're not here to break down the class as a whole. We're here to break down the race for the number three overall pick. And I'll, I'll ask you this. What player, uh, we're going to, you know, kind of maybe handicap this with odds at the end, right? All right? But before we get to, like, just ranking them, what player in this number three overall race is most interesting to you based off of what we've seen so far? I think the most interesting to me remains Amen Thompson for the Overtime Elite program. Uh, and it's it's due mainly to I don't know if I've ever seen somebody uh, that has the combination of first step and vertical athleticism that he does at about yeah. six foot seven. And it almost feels like even though he's a really good playmaker with the ball in his hands, even though he's got this absurd craft as a finisher to be able to contort himself around the basket and finish around guys just those physical tools that he brings to the table, NBA teams can do so much with and continue to tap into. Like He's going to be a walking paint touch at the next level. And that, to me, makes him the most intriguing of everybody we're going to talk about today as a number one option. Uh, I think one thing we've seen over the last several years or maybe even a decade or so is that NBA teams are – really good at developing guys to become competent shooters. Some guys that you don't necessarily see being good three-point shooters, whether it's on volume or or just even at all in their NBA careers, find a way to end up developing it at some point. And if that's the case, the natural tools, the the playmaking feel become even more important in, in the draft process. So I'm really intrigued by M.N. Thompson. It's why he's kind of been 
for lack of a better term, the front runner to be the number three pick in this draft for me. Uh, but I think that his, his physical tools are the most translatable to the NBA in terms of being a number one option. I think that his physical tools make him the player that have, that has the most upside almost just because of the athleticism, right? Like, this is a legitimate, like, Zach Levine-level elite athlete. You might be able to convince me his first step is better than, like, someone like Zach Levine. Yeah. And Zach Levine, for many years, was, if not the best athlete in the NBA, certainly among the top three, four, five in the NBA. I think Amen Thompson, from day one, is a top five athlete in the NBA point blank. Guys like John Morant, Zion Williamson – Etc. He is in that class, like no questions asked, in my opinion. He has an incredible mix of body control, first step explosiveness. Explosiveness is a leaper. Everything he does is just so powerful. It's he's so skinny but powerful at the same time. It's like yeah. everything is so coiled and ready to just like explode as soon as he touches the ball. He also, I think. As much as I love Case and Wallace, I, I think Case and Wallace is fucking outstanding, and he is unbelievable. Um, and his, I think basketball IQ defensively is probably higher than a Men Thompson's. Yep. But because a Men Thompson is six foot seven and has like a six foot eleven wingspan, I think a Men Thompson probably has the highest defensive upside of any of the perimeter players in this class. If things like really broke right for him on defense, he really works hard. He has an unbelievable motor. I really genuinely believe that Amen Thompson and Asor also, they're just like elite level character kids. Yeah. You can go back and watch the breakdown of their own tape that I did with them. Uh, go subscribe to the YouTube channel, Game Theory Podcast with Sam Ficini on YouTube. Uh, you'll be able to find that breakdown. It's in the section titled like tape breakdowns or whatever I titled it. Um, but they're so smart. They clearly are highly emotionally intelligent human beings and they work. Like you listen to anyone around the overtime elite program, they work. That's it. That's what they're about. So I really, really buy into a men Thompson. I just don't know if I love the touch. I like his touch around the basket for the most yeah. part. Yeah. I just haven't seen much that makes me believe he has the touch like from three. If it ever comes where he is like a remotely, threatening shooter he is elite of the elite like he is an all-star for many many times but the question is without the jump shot what is he and i don't know if we have an answer to that yet uh because he just is i don't want to say a man among boys in the overtime elite program i do think that the talent there is very underrated uh and you know you have guys like nasir cunningham robert dillingham uh yeah that's yeah i'm yeah. yeah, like you've guys there that are excellent. It was just weird saying like Cunningham, Dillingham, <laughs> like back to back. Like it's it caught my brain for a second. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> wait, it's rhyming now? Um, you have elite level talent across the entire uh, program now that does challenge him, but he's just on a different level uh, than you know a younger Nas Cunningham or someone like Dillingham, where he is just five inches taller yeah. essentially and just is just way bigger. So 
I love Amen Thompson, and uh, I really do genuinely believe uh, in his talent level. I think he is like unequivocally in this mix as a contender for the number three overall pick. We want to see the shooting. It's we've been talking about this since August, Sam. Like there has to be some growth in that regard this year, just to feel a little bit more comfortable about how he'll play with the ball in his hands, more so in the postseason than in the regular season when teams are starting to scheme for him a little bit more. When you switch matchups in different regards, you go under ball screens. Like I, I still think his first step is going to be explosive enough that it won't necessarily matter. Um, but really, really big fan. Really big fan. Yeah. So let's go to this next player here. Let's talk about Brandon Miller in this conversation. Because I think that Brandon is someone that, to me, is probably not in this conversation. If I'm being completely honest, I really like Brandon Miller. I have him as a lottery pick. I've seen some like pushback against him recently where it feels like people are really strongly reacting to how much he struggled inside the arc uh, as a scorer. I think he's shooting something like 32, 33% from two point range right now and shooting like 42, 43% from three. I think that that's going to revert. Like I, I, he doesn't have great bounce. He doesn't have great footwork as a finisher. Um, I think as much as anything, his struggles there are related to that footwork issue where he just doesn't get his, enough out of his athleticism around the basket. It's not that he's a bad athlete. I just think he really needs to get with a trainer this summer and just like work through his steps when driving because he just gets caught in between steps way too easily and way too frequently. Um, yeah. I don't, really see him as a number three overall contender, but I do think there's a slight overreaction to like wondering if he's a lottery pick. It's just really fucking hard to find guys that are six foot nine that can shoot and are switchable defensively that are like 20 years old. Cause he'll be, if he's not 20 already, he'll be 20 on draft day. I know that. Um, It's just really, really hard to find guys that have that kind of size, that have that kind of fluidity as an athlete, uh, that have that kind of switchability, that have the uh, ability to slide with guards that are decent help defenders. I don't think he's like a crazy defender necessarily, but I think he is someone that will be able to live out there in the playoffs in a defensive scheme. I see him as like a starter, essentially, in the NBA. And that's a guy that's a lottery pick, I think, because if the handle ever does come along and the footwork ever comes along, you do see some real like pathways to significant upside, even if he's not quite there. yet. I think that he's a really, really high end, like offensive version of a role player who can also be somebody that, you know, um, if, if he does get the handle fixed a little bit more. He's a tough bucket. He, he just finds ways to score in really tough ways in the mid-range area. So if that continues to develop, if he can just put a little bit more pressure on, on defenses to separate one-on-one, not necessarily get all the way to the rim, but to at least draw help defenders, I think we've seen enough playmaking and passing feel from him that he's going to be going to be smart in that regard. You know, for all of the semi-physical limitations that Brandon Miller has, he's actually a decently smart basketball player. Knows how to use angles to his advantages, is a willing passer in different ways. Like The handle has to improve in terms of how he separates from people, but if he can get there, there's a front court-ish handler, like pick-and-roll initiating role that I think he can live up to someday. So 
I'm in agreement, not a number three contender, but I'm glad you brought him up here because his stock has been so volatile up and down the board already thus far in, in the draft cycle, going from you know mid-first round or, or late-first round guy with a ton of preseason hype, and we, got, we ended up getting him pretty high on my uh, you know, preseason mock draft that we did here. And I think that coming down to earth a little bit, seeing the limitations in real time, but still need to understand like this is a top 10 pick uh, and, and he's yep. a really good offensive player. Okay. I want to stay in the SEC for this next one. And I want to give uh, what might be seen as something of a hot take. I don't know. For what it's worth, there are quite a few scouts that I talk to that do see it this way, but it's not consensus right now. I like Anthony Black more than I like Nick Smith. Ooh. That's where I'm at on this. I know that Nick Smith had the explosion points-wise uh, in the game against Oklahoma this week. I watched that game this morning. My eyes just kept going toward Anthony Black in that game. He should have had, like, 12, 15 assists in that game, and they just, like, smoked layups and missed open threes. He lives in the paint. He's a terrific passer. His feel for the game, we knew his feel for the game was terrific coming into the season. It's exceeded that. Like, his handle and his ability, his explosiveness, his first step, I think has exceeded what I expected. I wasn't quite sure what to make of the athleticism with him coming out of Texas, but, like, I wasn't sure if it was like Josh Giddy. Is he a little bit more than Josh Giddy athletically? Is he something a little bit less than that? Like in terms of explosiveness, I think he's really, really impressive. And on top of that, he's a killer defender and he's shown more touch than what we expected coming into the year. The mechanics need some work, but I think that there's enough touch there to buy into it. I I have Anthony Black at number five on my board right now. I am very in. And look, that group from like five to nine, five to 10 is very fluid. I I have a lot of names like right in there. And we're going to talk about a lot of them within this discussion. I think Anthony Black is outstanding and I am extremely in on him as a prospect. If you recall, Sam, when we were doing this exercise over the summer and looking ahead to the draft class, we were talking a lot about what is it that Anthony Black needs to show this year. And I had two, kind of two and a half things to see. One is the explosion athletically and the ability to get separation from his man one-on-one put pressure on the rim. I think we can check that box and safely say that he's a good athlete against other college players, against other people his own age, and he's got a tight enough handle to be able to separate. I think the other area I wanted to look for it's just his conversion around the rim. I saw a player when he was in high school who got a lot of offensive rebounds and, and finishes of his own misses that left some points on the board because he was kind of aiming his, his finishes near the rim and overcompensating with spin and touch. I think he solved some of those problems, at least from what we've seen already. Now, as we get deeper into SEC play, there's more physicality, there's more length, there's more interior defense that he might be going up against we can see some of that change. Uh, But I've been really impressed with the finishing touch as well as the first step. That two and a half area was going to be the jump shot. We knew it was a work in progress in terms of how smooth it is, but I wasn't necessarily concerned of how high of a caliber he's going to make them. 
more so about the willingness to take them. Does he have confidence in his jumper enough to play off ball when Nick Smith, when Ricky Jedi Council, when some of the other guys on this Arkansas team have the ball in their hands? And I think the answer has been yes. Uh, I want to see that continue to grow as we get more games where he and Nick Smith are playing together. I think that three-man backcourt in Arkansas of Smith, Black, and Council is incredibly, incredibly explosive. I think all three have the potential to be first-round picks. I think Council is pretty dang good. But with that said, I I just want to see how Black spaces the floor consistently and want a little bit more of a sample before vaulting him into this category. But I'm with you. The the size, the feel, the defensive pressure – and how he has answered every single question that we've had of him coming into the season. He, he belongs to be somebody mentioned in this conversation. I think he should be mentioned in this conversation. And that's not a slight at Nick Smith. I think Nick Smith has been everything we expected coming into this season. I mean, he was terrific in this Oklahoma game. I think that what I underrated with Nick Smith coming into the year is how good he is at moving without the ball. Uh, I kind of thought, just because I guess he didn't have a lot of reps that I saw moving without the ball coming into the season, but he's really smart. Like he, in the first 20 minutes of that game against Oklahoma, he like just threw the ball back to Anthony black and then hit this like quick back cut on a 45 cup from the wing and just took the pass and just laid it in like an inside hand, right hand layup. And it was one of the better cuts I've seen from him throughout his career. Just cause like, again, this is a guy that's had the ball in his hands throughout the course of his career. I think that he really knows how to play in a way that like sometimes a lot of these combo guard, like scoring guard types don't always know, right? Like Jordan pool, it took Jordan pool three or four years in golden state to like, I would say really three years to get to the point where he was like a good off ball cutter. A lot of his value in that breakout, like third season was when, or yeah, I guess the breakout third season, even going into like the end of the second season was when he was a driver, right? He was a driver that was attacking the basket constantly and then provided value as a shooter with, you know, now he's playing within their offense. He's taking cuts occasionally when he plays with Steph, that offense is rubbed off on him. Nick Smith, it seems like kind of already has that like intelligence, that feel for spacing, that feel for where the open play is. And I think that that's a really, really impressive, uh, important translatable skill for him as he plays more on and off the ball in the NBA, as opposed to just being on the ball. His handle is very quick. It's very twitchy. Uh, he really uses his shoulders well with his handle, I think. Uh, really, really good at kind of fainting with his shoulders to get defenders off guard. His footwork is absolutely elite as well. I don't think he has like this incredible first step, but I think that his footwork is just so clean and pristine and polished that he's just always perfectly in the right position to be able to attack. Uh, at the next level. So I, I really, really like what we've seen from Nick Smith as well. It's not a slight when I say I have like Nick Smith somewhere between six and seven right now and just like the smallest, smallest, smallest step below Anthony Black. It's that I think Anthony Black has been awesome and also brings it at a very high level defensively as a point of attack defender, as well as being able to live in the paint, as well as being six foot seven and as well as being, you know, one of the five or six best passers. His IQ is just unbelievable. It's not a slight at Nick Smith when I say I like Anthony just a touch more right now. It's 
an incredible credit to what Anthony Black has brought to the table. What have been your early impressions of Nick Smith so far? Nick Smith, uh, I think you hit it really well with the, the great footwork, the polish that he has as a ball handler and how he uses angles, not necessarily explosion, to create separation. Uh, a couple of the things that I've noticed from him as a driver, first and foremost, he's got great touch on his runner or his floater as he's attacking the basket. He doesn't need to come to a, a stop off two feet or kind of jump stop in that regard. He can float it off on the move and off one. And that forces big men and help defenders to step up to him a little bit more. I've also seen him be pretty fearless at trying to attack them in those moments they step up and get to the free throw line. That was an area I, I was impressed with with Smith. A little bit more of a slender frame, you know, long and wiry for like a combo guard, but he is not afraid to, to get to the free throw line. I love the off-ball stuff. Really glad that you led with some of that there. Ability to move without the ball, cutting, not just spacing and, and moving off of screens. He almost plays like a Kentucky guard who comes in the NBA for me, mm. like a, a Devin Booker, a Jamal Murray, you know, one of these guys who is constantly running off floppy screens and baseline actions and knows how to slow down and change speeds to create separation. There's this real, uh, this real high IQ feel that he has for just how to get away from his man and find open space. That is really intriguing to me when he plays with high IQ passers. And I think that's where he and Anthony Black complement each other so, so, so well. The, the one last thing I'll say on this Arkansas team, and one of the, the areas that I think reveals itself throughout the college basketball season, is you start to see where coaches and players become matches in heaven. And Eric Musselman, as competitive of a dude as he is, and just wants to go pause to the wall every single game, Anthony Black is the one guy that fits that yeah. really, really well. And that's yeah. where you can see how Black ended up at Arkansas and fell in love with the vision of the must bus and why he's the guy that's kind of driving it right now. Because when push comes to shove, when there's a play to be made, he's going to make it. He's going to respond physically. He's going to continually apply pressure all game. And I think it's the reason why he looks more like the number one option in Arkansas's offense than Nick Smith does right now. Okay. So let's go to the next guy now. I actually did this purposely because I wanted to get some separation from these two guys just in terms of the discussion point because I think they're always obviously discussed together as often as they are. And it's Asar Thompson. Uh, he and a man are discussed like almost as a package deal because they've been a package deal throughout their career at this point. But when they get to the NBA, that's in all likelihood at least not going to be the case. And – they're very different, I think, in the way that they operate on the court. But Asor, I think, has really moved up in my estimation throughout the year. I liked them a lot in the preseason, like in the offseason, and especially after like talking to them. And then I got a little bit worried after seeing him in some of those, you know, Europe games and some of the other games they played in the preseason because the shot just wasn't falling, right? It just was not falling in a substantial way. That has reverted a little bit. He looks a little bit better now as a shooter. Uh, I still have my concerns on the consistency as a shooter, but any flashes that these two show as shooters are going to get people excited because they're such elite athletes. Now, the sore is a little bit of a step below a man in terms of twitchiness. And that means that 
I think he's probably going to have a bit of a harder time being a primary. Whereas I think a man is just like a straight up primary. Um, where do you fall on Asar Thompson and his place in this discussion as a potential option at number three? I, I have, I have heard him from teams as high as number five so far. Uh, you know, th- there are teams that like do genuinely see a sore Thompson like in that top five mix for sure. And I don't think that's crazy at all. Uh, I-, I think that he's continued to be a really good player uh, for for the OTE program, and it's really hard to evaluate a sore when you have the context of the fact that he's playing next to a generational type of athlete who's six foot seven, plays with a ball in his hands, and shoots the ball even worse than he does that that's going to limit some of the on-ball reps that we might see for a guy like Asor in different ways just because those two are teammates. Um, I agree with you. I think Amen has an easier translation to being a primary option because that first step is just a little bit more explosive and really, really strong. When it comes to what Asor brings to the table, and look, this is what we do for a living, so this isn't necessarily a critique at ourselves, but there is so much attention paid to every single game that these guys are are participating in that any flash of shooting gets seen as a major positive. And with a men and with a sore, it was really going to be, you know, the first one to develop any semblance of a jump shot is the one that might take the biggest leap relative to their starting position in this draft cycle. I want to play off the law of averages. I want to wait. I want to see what it looks like at the end of the season, if there have been any mechanical tweaks, when we just have a larger sample size to really discuss the shooting. Because I think that there's a level of irresponsibility in going in here December 11th and saying, well, he's you know above 30% for the year, or he's just started to hit a little bit more lately. Like, yeah, that's lately. That's a very small sample right here we need to know a little bit more. So um, I see a very clear pathway where he's a top five pick, maybe even if the shooting is real in contention for that number three area. But I think that a man being much more of a primary option makes it more important for a sword to shoot. And that's where this is just going to be a really important swing skill for him over the next four or five months. Yeah, completely agree. Uh, okay, now it's time for the fun part for you. As the podcast's Cam Whitmore expert, uh, where Cam Whitmore has finally started playing games for Villanova. I think he had 19 points over the weekend for Villanova against Boston College. What have been your earliest impressions of Cam Whitmore in his transition to college basketball now that he's healthy again following his uh, month out of action to start the season? His confidence has translated right away. Uh, This is a guy who is auditioning for the role of being a primary option and knows that that's his pathway forward to NBA success. So he's playing more. And that that Villanova desperately needs it right now as well. And Nova's 3-0 in the games that he's played in because they finally have somebody who can put pressure on the rim and create a shot for himself in one-on-one situations. I've been impressed that Whitmore is playing a little bit more in the mid-range. I've talked about it before, Sam, the way I saw him in high school. Drives right, he's getting to the rim. Drives left, he's going for his step back. I think what we've seen already through just three games, when he goes to his left, he can get to the rim a little bit more. He keeps his bounce. He uses his right shoulder to shield defenders off. 
and he just runs through people. Like he is built like a tank. He's super, super strong, and he's able to run through people. I have not seen the step back or the pull up jumper really when he drives to his right yet. It's another just small nitpicky area that he's going to need in order to be a number one option. But the combination of what seems to be a very real jump shot and this strong ability to get past and through anybody to put pressure on the rim is going to be valuable at the NBA level. I want to see two really important things from him. One is a little bit more craft with his game around the basket. I think that right now all of his his makes and his easy finishes come from just plowing people over. I think that he's going to have a little bit less of an ability to do that at the NBA. He'll still be super strong, but he needs to find ways to be able to score in moments when he can't bully guys. And the second thing, quick decision-making off the catch. Right now he's much more of a catch-hold survey, look at his man one-on-one, decide what he wants to do. And I think guys who have his physical prowess, if you can get them downhill before a defense is set, that's how the the separation happens. That's how he's explosive at punishing the rim. So two small areas. It's only been a few games from Whitmore. Really impressed on the offensive side. Think that as he gets his legs under him a little bit more, moves into the starting lineup for Villanova and just ends up playing closer to 30 minutes a night, we're going to see a real offensive explosion for him that's, that's very, very legitimate and shows that he's got as good of a chance as anybody of going number three. Yeah, Whitmore's a really interesting player. I would say that he is extremely likely to end up as a top five guy for me in this class. Uh, I would be surprised if he fell out of that top five. And my early impressions of him have been extremely positive to Villanova, largely because of how polished he seems to be as an attacking off ball player. There was a moment in that Boston college game where he got his first, uh, he got his first bucket, I believe at the foul line because he like split a double. uh, And then like after splitting immediately gathered and planted off of two feet and went up for like a monster dunk and just like missed the dunk while getting fouled. And it was just like, oh, no, this is like the best athlete like in college basketball right now in terms of mixing power, grace, body control, stop start ability, deceleration, all of it. Like, it's just awesome. He is a ridiculous, powerful athlete. His shake, I think, going backward has been really apparent as a ball handler. He is very comfortable putting the ball on the ground using his footwork, using his shoulders again to be able to shake and get to that step back jumper. He's made a few of those. He made a few of those in the Boston College game, particularly. He made one from the mid-range that was super impressive, as well as one behind a ball screen that was very impressive. That's like stuff that for a guy that's like six foot seven, 230 pounds, physical athlete, going to get buckets in transition, going to get buckets as a cutter, going to get buckets as an on-ball creator very clearly. That's stuff that is very, very hard to find for that size in that powerful level. One thing that does worry me a little bit is Boston College did some different things defensively to try and clog up the paint in that game. And like Villanova tried to get Whitmore the ball like at the top of the key with some ISO stuff. They tried to get Whitmore um, the ball like on the wing with some ISO stuff, on the wing with some ball screen potential possessions. 
And I was a little bit worried about his first step watching that. I don't, he is an elite athlete in terms of explosiveness, transition from power uh, to explosiveness, body control in general. I think that all of that stuff, like grace in the air, all of those athletic traits that he has are extremely impressive. I don't know if he has a great first step and I don't know if he's going to be able to like consistently get by bigs out in space. It's very possible that, you know, Villanova is just not a well-spaced team this year, uh, especially by their standards. This is a team that typically like really, really like can knock down shots at like a 40% clip. And certainly they're taking a lot of threes, but like, you know, Caleb Daniels is a guy that certainly teams guard out there, but everyone else, I mean, like, I think teams are just happy when Chris Archidiacono has the ball and would rather him <laughs> shoot than anyone yeah. else. Um, teams don't really treat Mark Armstrong as a shooter. Jordan Longino hasn't really shown that he can shoot. Teams certainly don't shoot brand or don't treat Brandon Slater as a shooter. And again, like, I, I think Eric Dixon can shoot, but teams are just like, okay, if you're going to stay out there, like, go ahead, we'll get a late contest on you. So they're just kind of crowding the lane in a way that typically a Villanova lane is not all that crowded in this way. So I would like to see a little bit more tape on where Cam Whitmore's first step is, I think. But the big thing is like plays with real bend, plays with real body control, plays with real grace, plays with real fluidity, um, explosiveness, power, he is he is like a very significant upside bet in this class, I think. Yeah, and, and a good observation, you know, with the first step there. I think that there is relation between your major point and mine of, you know, quick decision making off the catch as well as that first step that if he's able to maybe take a, a half second less to be able to attack guys and get into the lane, that first step is maybe feared a little bit more where defenders can't establish themselves and force him to, to try to drive through or around them where clogging the lane is a harder to do because he's catching the ball on the move. So there are some imaginative things that Kyle Neptune and this Villanova offense can do in order to get him the ball. So he's already attacking downhill and keep his reads simplified. I want to see if that happens throughout the rest of the year, but his upside is just, it's way too great being as big and as strong as he is. And, and the shot looks clean, Sam. Like I, he shoots it confidently. He shoots multiple attempts per game. I, yeah. I, man, I, I'm just, I'm trying not to be the Baltimore homer and, and rooting for a guy that I coached against to have that success, but I'm finding a really difficult time in nitpicking other parts of his game. Okay. So I, I'm with you. I, I'm very in on Cam Whitmore. This is where we get to have fun now. So let's handicap the race for number three overall, because that's what we said we would do. We have gone through seven guys here, right? Seven or six. I think six, maybe. Amen Thompson, Cam Whitmore, Anthony Black, Nick Smith, Brandon Miller, Asar Thompson. So that's six. Let's start bottom up. I think that Brandon Miller is yep. probably the bottom there. Mm-hmm. Then, mm, then I think I would go 
Asar Thompson and Nick Smith next. I've already said I have Anthony Black at five, so I think he has to be in the middle here. And then I would have Amon Thompson at three and Cam Whitmore at four. How would you currently go about handicapping this race? I think at the bottom for me would be a combination of Brandon Miller and Anthony Black. That's kind of a two-man group that I, I would put closer together. The next one for me would be uh, Nick Smith, slightly above that. I would have a sore slightly above him, and then Whitmore trailing very closely Amen Thompson. Yeah. So you would go Amen, Whitmore, Nick Smith, no, Asor, Asor. Nick yeah. Smith, then a combination of Brandon Miller and Anthony Black. Yep. And, and, and I would I, I would throw Keontae George around that level of conversation just for good measure. Uh, I think that he doesn't have quite the same physical burst that I'm hoping for. And, and I want to see that go through big 12 play before anointing him in that category, skilled playmaker, really good scorer competes and has gotten a lot better on the defensive end. But if he's going to be a primary guy in the NBA, we need to see more separation. I just need more time to get there. So I think there's a chance he works his way into that bottom tier of guys that we just talked about as well. And for what it's worth, I have a big mix of guys from five to nine, which means we didn't talk about one of those guys, which is Case and Wallace. I would have Case and Wallace in that mix at number nine. And I just don't quite think he can get to number three. He's just a little bit small. doesn't quite have enough upside, I think, in terms of on-ball prowess. But teams love him. They do love his feel for the game. They love his IQ. They love his... Uh, defensive ability, certainly, certainly they like the steps that he's shown as a shooter this year. Um, I, I just find it hard to believe that they're going to take like a six, three, six, four defense first guard at number three, maybe. But so I, I would go to reiterate Amen Thompson, Cam Whitmore, Anthony Black, probably then Nick Smith, Asore Thompson, Brandon Miller, then Casey Wallace at number nine would be where I sit on this. Okay, we've talked for 40 minutes. Let's take a quick commercial break, and then we're going to dive into our next two segments. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. Everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, For instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in. 
creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash gametheory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y, to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. Nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. Okay, folks, it's time for the segment we haven't done for a few weeks. It's tank watch time. We're going to dive into the teams that are in the mix to try and be in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes or that maybe you're trying not to be in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes but can't help themselves. Then it's important to know the rules here. Stock up means that your team is bad and that your stock is rising to end up in the Victor Wembanyama sweepstakes. Stock down means that your team is playing better. Why are we doing this in a convoluted way? Because this segment is dumb, and why wouldn't we just get <laughs> as dumb as possible with it, right? Right. <laughs> so, Spins, stock up. Who are you going with? Uh, this week for stock up, I am going with the Washington Wizards. Uh, six losses in a row as we're currently recording this right now. ton of guys banged up. A lot of injuries taking place. And, and look, Kristaps Porzingis has been playing well. We have not seen him and Bradley Beal play a ton of minutes together. I still have questions about just the overall fits of guys on this roster. And there's a huge portion of this that's influenced by you know how the rest of the league is doing that one six seven game losing streak in a early december late november can really impact where you sit next to your peers and i think we've seen quite a few teams in the eastern conference continue to win games maybe survive an injury or two and surpass washington in the standings uh, to me that's more about things leveling out to where they predictably should have been closer to the start of of this season uh, I don't know where you weigh in on the Wizards right now I haven't watched a ton of their games over the last week but it just seems like they're going to struggle to find a groove if they don't get everybody healthy really quickly yeah I agree so they played the Clippers uh what was that I think it was yesterday right um might, might have been two days ago and they had Will Barton out Bradley Beal out DeLon Wright out I think Monte Morris didn't play in that game as well. And Johnny Davis was still in the G League. <laughs> That's a bad sign to me. You have all these guys out and he's still not 
able to win a spot. I watched like some of his G League stuff earlier today. And so like the overall numbers here in the G League for Johnny Davis, 13 points, four rebounds, two assists, 43% from the field, 35% from three. That's in the G League for Johnny Davis. He just feels a little more invisible at that level than what you'd like to see. And it's hard. Like, I, I don't know what to do with him. He he yeah. might just not have it, which yeah. is bad. It's bad, particularly if they wind up somewhere in February and saying, okay, it's time to maybe pull the plug on the season or embrace getting our younger guys some real NBA minutes. And Davis hasn't, gotten the confidence down in the G League to show that he can can handle that, or he's just simply not getting better as a basketball player in the ways that he needs to. Uh, we talked about you know his handle, his fluidity as somebody who attacks the basket as more of a primary option. I always thought his defense was going to be maybe his most translatable skill to the NBA level, but he's got to be able to cobble something together on the offensive end of the floor in order to to really be worth continued investment from the Wizards right here. Uh, we've also talked a lot about the redundancies of some of the positions that they have with younger guys that, you know, constructing a roster where okay, Kyle Kuzma is playing really well. How do you carve out minutes for Corey Kispert and Denny Avia and Rui Hachimura and all of these different guys that are still on their rookie deals? Um, how do you draft Johnny Davis and then go out there and sign or trade for guys like Will Barton and Monte Morris and, you know, have Jordan Goodwin earn a spot on this team. It's just really hard to know what they have building towards the future, which makes this kind of a a directionless winter in some regards, where if they do fall out of the playoff race, I have no idea what to expect from them in terms of what direction they go and who they try to prioritize for next steps. Yeah, and like the hope for Johnny Davis would, was like that he could be like an on-ball creator kind of that yeah. – could live off of his pull-up jump shot a little bit and could defend at a high level and be like a complimentary starter, right? The good news, I guess, is that like the complimentary skills have kind of showcased in the G League. I think he's been pretty okay defensively. And then on top of it, he is making his catch-and-shoot jumpers. So I pulled up his numbers here in the G League. He's made 42% of his catch-and-shoot threes so far this year. He's only taken 19 of them, but it's a good sign. The problem is that he's making 21% of his jumpers off the dribble right now. And he has no – this is a guy that, like, has never really had much of a, like, floater game. He is an in-between game just based off of, like, the mid-range pull-up. But, like, he's never had that, like, craft as, like, a forward attacker trying to – you know, knock down that little floater in the eight to 12 foot range, a shot that's really important for him is someone who's like in the six foot three to six foot four range. I guess like maybe I think he's a little over six foot four, maybe is what he came in at. So I don't know, man, like maybe it is a little bit weird to me that like he can't get on the court if he's going to make catch and shoot threes and is going to defend at a reasonable level. But like, the Wizards like just straight up like inverted their offense sort of kind of in this Clippers game where like Jordan Goodwin played some point guard, but like they initiated a lot with Denny Avdia. They initiated a lot with Kyle Kuzma, right? There were only two guards that played in this game for the Wizards, Jordan Goodwin and Devon Dotson, 
both of whom are undrafted guys, Devon Dotson a couple of years ago, Jordan Goodwin this year, like it, if he can't get minutes yeah. over those guys or like, just can't even like, I mean, you're, you're playing like, I guess that they like played some Corey, like they played a lot of Corey Kispert minutes at the three in that game, yeah. like some minutes at the two, I guess for Kispert. I, I don't know, man. I, I would I would like to see Johnny Davis, I guess, is the thing. Johnny Davis, please come back. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a guy that, uh, like, I know missed a little bit of time early in the season with some COVID stuff. Maybe they're trying to ramp him back up. I don't know, man. I'm concerned. Uh, e- even with that, like, I'm, I'm concerned about this, and I, I just hope that – uh, he is being developed in the right way. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said for when you know your franchise player is Bradley Beal, that you need the right type of guard to work next to him. And if Johnny Davis is going to be more of a spot-up, catch-and-shoot two guard who you know defends well and just doesn't operate with the ball in his hands a ton, I don't know how well that meshes with Bradley Beal. Like If that's the vision from day one and we're not trying to explore more, that seems like as much of a philosophical pro, uh, problem for how you projected Johnny Davis's role next to what you're building for than it does kind of Davis realizing his skill. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. It's a bummer. I mean, that's, that's definitely tank watch up. The vibes are not good right now in Washington. They uh, are what four games below 500 in what is a playoff race that is going to be exceptionally tight. Uh as the season progresses. So this is not good. This is very not good. Uh, I also want to give my tank watch up right now. The Louisville Cardinals. This is not an NBA team that's tanking. It's a college team that looks like the worst college team at the high major level I can remember. This is a team that has talent too. Like they should not be this bad. They absolutely should not be this bad, but they have really one ball handler that they can rely on in L. Ellis. And then when teams just try and take him out of the game, it becomes exceptionally hard for them to initiate any offense whatsoever. And Ellis can get a little bit turnovery from time to time as it is. This team, it just looks like every team that plays Louisville is ready for every single action that they're going to run every single time. There is no... It seems like there's no creativity. It seems like there's no trying to manufacture open shots. It, it, it looked like three of or four of their five best players are like fours. So spacing yes. is hard yeah. there, yeah. right? Like spacing is very difficult and it's hard to manufacture shots if you can't manufacture spacing because you can't shoot. But like they don't really shoot well. They don't manufacture open shots with like interesting, intricate sets. They turn the ball over like crazy. Like this is like the least functioning offense I've seen in a long time at the college level. Yeah. If, you, if you're not going to shoot it as a coach, you've got to step up and scheme a little bit more. you got to find ways to get guys open near the basket. You've got to create movement patterns that are simultaneously effective at opening up the lane and unpredictable. So defenses can't hone in on tendencies that it, you know, you can take care of the basketball in certain ways. And you know, I'm not one to throw any coach under the bus. That's that's just not what I like to do because I know how hard this job is and can be. 
the one thing I have noticed from Kenny Payne, not necessarily a critique, but certainly something that caught my eye is that a lot of his responses and his media answers tend to be revolving around playing harder and having more fight and buy-in from the players in that regard. And while I, I think the, the vibes are pretty far down in Louisville, and that's a, a fair uh, you know, constructive criticism to have of, of the guys within that program, I think that there also needs to be some activity to try to meet them halfway, right? To realize the limitations of, of the club, to understand the personnel that you have in order to, to field a strong defense and play all of those bigger wings that they have and just find a way to, whether it's constant pressure on the defensive end of the floor so you can get out and play in transition and create early easy buckets, that gets your energy, that gets your momentum up. Uh, something. And it, it seems like a lot of it right now is the rah-rah, like we got to buy in, we got to try harder, we got to dig deeper, the cliches as opposed to the, the tactical fixes. Yeah, here's the thing. Their defense has not been that bad since Maui. Like they played Maryland. They gave up 79 points and 71 possessions. They played Miami. They gave up 80 points and 74 possessions. They played Florida State. They gave up 75 and 69 possessions. Like that's not good. It's certainly not what you would want to see. But the defense is like not the problem here. The defense is aggressively not the problem here. It is the offense. The offense is a nightmare. Like, and you don't manufacture offense by playing harder. You manufacture offense by running sets or doing creative things or trying to space it a little bit more. Like this team shoots 28% from three. They take, I guess, like a reasonable amount of threes for the fact that they shoot 28%. But like, They just turn it over like crazy. They don't really go to the glass and like offensive rebound either, which is kind of staggering to me. Uh, This team currently is, let's see here, 314th in the country in offensive rebounding rate, despite the fact that they're like playing, you know, JJ Trainer, Jalen Withers, and Brandon Huntley Hatfield as their most common lineup. And then have guys like Kamari Lands, Roosevelt Wheeler, Sidney Curry, like, these guys yeah. should be crashing the glass. Like manufacture offense that way, manufacture extra possessions that way. This is a disaster. Like this is, I, I have kind of seen enough from this to where if they go like two and 30 or whatever, they're on pace to go. I'm good with them deciding Kenny Payne is not the guy. Like that's, that would be okay to me. That that is, I am typically never in favor of a team firing a guy after one season. I think that in college you need to get time to build a program, but like, I just haven't seen anything that makes me think that there is like scheme coherence there that will work. Look, the the two most efficient modes of offense are offensive rebounding and transition. And you can call that hustle plays. I, I think that there are different ways schematically that you tap into that. One of them is certainly sending more guys to the class, and I think Louisville has the personnel for it. I think the other is just deciding you're going to be more aggressive. You're going to trap more. You're going to shoot passing lanes a little bit more. Give them the green light to turn defense into offense so that they get extra possessions. I mean, how many you know young NBA teams have we watched over the last 
half decade or so that when they're super, super young and they don't have the talent to hang with everybody, they're just more aggressive in everything that they do. They're okay with making some of those mistakes, but it's about flying around out there, trying to create something to happen. And hey, maybe one night you hit enough threes and you just play a ton in transition to outscore somebody else. I think that's got to be Louisville's mentality here, particularly knowing that they're really struggling to create anything in the half court. Or maybe you try and slow the game down, right? Like play at a like snail's pace, right? Just limit possessions and then try and increase variance, right? Like may- maybe that's what you do. Maybe you, you know, bring the ball down, you do what Virginia does. You try and run offense, you try and create a shot. But like, then again, like, I don't, I don't know that they're like manufacturing shots, I guess, by running offense either. So yeah, there's just not much here that is good. And like, I guess that they were excited about Kenny Payne bringing maybe like DJ Wagner and like going and recruiting while they lost. Like doesn't seem like they're going to get DJ Wagner. And I don't know about you, but like their transfer hall last year was underwhelming uh, in an era where you have to hit the transfer portal hard. If you don't have a plan to hit the transfer portal hard as a high major program, you are falling behind your competitors at this point. That is the reality of the transfer portal. This is bad. Louisville should never be this bad. Louisville should have higher expectations. This is a team in a program that makes an exceptional amount of money because they have an incredibly good deal with the state, the stadium. What do you want to call it? Like it's the yum center. I know that like they have a great, great deal there where they make a lot of the funds they can afford to pay a buyout if they have to. Um, and they have a lot of financial benefactors that I'm certain would be willing to pay a buyout. I know it sucks to maybe do it to one of your own. And let's see how the season goes. Maybe they get better. Maybe they show signs of life in the second half. Maybe they adjust the scheme here uh, in order to make some changes. They have a nine-game layoff between the NC State game and or a nine-day layoff, you know, including Christmas, obviously between the NC State game and the Kentucky game, maybe that's your window to try and do some things a little bit differently, right? Maybe you can try and implement some things there that you haven't been able to. But yeah, no, this is a, if we're at the point now where like that staff, I think should be worried at this point. Like this is bad. College basketball is better when Louisville is good. So I think we're all yeah. we're all rooting for this to, to turn around and even just show signs of life throughout the rest of the season that keeps recruits, keeps transfer portal hopes alive to to keep things going. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do stock down in tank watch? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So we right. uh, we alluded to the Washington Wizards may be falling a little bit in the standings, not just because they've lost six in a row and they've had some injuries, but in large part because there have been a couple teams that have started to win games and figure things out in the Eastern Conference. And I think one such team is the Brooklyn Nets, that after a real disastrous start to the season, their defense being like woeful levels of putrid on an NBA scale, They have started to defend a little bit better. They've gotten healthier. We saw a more aggressive version of Ben Simmons. We've seen good minutes from Nick Claxton playing the five. They're responding to Jacques Vaughn in a lot of different ways. Like 
they're really deep when they're healthy. And I think that a coach who knows what buttons to press can field so many different and dangerous type of lineups around what still end up being two of the most dangerous offensive pieces in the entire world in Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So I think Brooklyn, they're up to around either fourth or fifth in the Eastern Conference as we currently sit. And I think that because of the manner in which they've gotten there, uh, fixing some things on the defensive end of the floor, attacking more on offense and just being healthy, there's going to be a level of sustainability to that where I don't see them falling out of the playoff picture. Yeah, I've watched the most recent game of theirs I watched was their win against the Hawks. Um, what would that that'd be like three days ago, maybe. And it was exactly what you said. It was Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving just completely taking over, but they've gone small is the thing. Like in the starting lineup, you know, it was Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Ben Simmons, and then Joe Harrison, Royce O'Neal. And that was a very, very effective offensive group. I felt that was very, very difficult to stop. They're up to 10th right now in offensive rating league wide. And it's just a very difficult problem to solve when you have five guys out there that can really space the floor. And then you can hopefully just kind of get enough help defense with Ben and uh, Kevin out there. And Kevin has been very, very good defensively. I think Kevin Durant has been, you know, we just did like a conversation about MVP last week on the podcast. And I maybe didn't quite state as much about Kevin Durant as I should have. Kevin Durant has unequivocally been one of the five best players in the NBA this year. And, and like, if you wanted to make a case for Kevin Durant being the best player in the NBA this year, I would, I would hundred percent listen to that. Uh, I would still probably take Giannis and I would still probably take Jason Tatum, but Kevin Durant has been on that level in that tier as a player this year, Uh, just in terms of his unbelievable mid-range shooting. I mean, he's preposterously good from that range, but also the defense. He is carrying a lot on his shoulders defensively right now. Um, in a way that we haven't really seen since he came back from the Achilles injury. He's always been a smart defender. He's always known how to use his length. But I think that maybe the last couple of years, he kind of reserved a bit of energy for the offensive side, knowing that they needed that. This year, he knows that they need him defensively at a really high level. They need his length defensively. And he is doing it all. Like, he he has been one of the most complete players in the NBA this year uh, in a way that he doesn't always get credit for being, but is well-deserved in my opinion. They have found out and credit to Jacques Vaughn for this playing Simmons at the pseudo five position has been really, really effective for them that I think I wrote an article earlier this week for SB nation. I'm sure the numbers have changed a little bit since then, but in the minutes that Simmons is playing, with both Claxton and Deron Sharp off the floor, where Simmons is the clear biggest guy there, they're like plus 10 per 100 possessions. They're, they're a really effective unit in that regard. And I think the biggest reason for that, while Simmons is not a traditional center on the defensive end of the floor, what he does better is actually guarding the perimeter. When you have another guy who's you know seven feet tall and Kevin Durant can block shots smart rotationally, you've got some stronger, bigger bodies that you can throw at different matchups like a Royce O'Neal. You've got options to be able to construct a defense. And Vaughn has been much more uh, bought into that end than maybe Steve Nash was in that regard, where I, I think Brooklyn is going to find not just regular season success, but be 
a versatile enough team on both ends of the floor come the postseason that they can be a problem for somebody. Okay. Let's get into prospects of the week now. Oh, yeah. Uh, because we haven't done prospects of the week over the last couple of weeks, we wanted to double dip this week and dive into four guys that have been standout players over the course of the last week, two weeks in recent memory. Spins, I will give you the floor first. Who is your first prospect of the week this week? So in a traditional sense, prospect of the week is really highlighting guys who have played well since the last time you and I recorded, Sam. And with that being last Sunday, I want to hit a guy who's had two really, really good games and basically hasn't missed a shot. Uh, Taylor Hendricks of Central Florida, I think, is playing himself in contention to be a potential one-and-done guy. You had mentioned and brought up his name a little bit earlier as one of those middle part of the high school rankings coming into this year, but uh, NBA scouts find themselves enamored with him, and there's a, a big reason why. He's about six foot eight, like really big, strong, bodied wing. You think he's a little taller than that? I have heard that he might come in above six foot nine. Ooh, me likey. So <laughs> Hendricks is is continuing to grow. He's continuing to find confidence. I think UCF has been the perfect spot for him because they allow him to play in so many different ways and roles and not just be a bigger wing floor spacer that I think he would be more of if you were playing on a true high major contender type of team. Uh, you know, Today against Tarleton, 16 points, 6 of 7 from the field, 3 of 3 from deep, 9 boards, 2 blocks, a handful of really good passes. I think he's starting to explore the space a little bit more as a creator. Uh, last weekend against Samford, 21 points, similarly 6 of 7 from the field, Four of five from three. So, yes, he is seven of eight from his last two games from deep. And yeah, and the, he's, the shot he's looks just, good. It looks great. It's quick. It's smooth. He hits it in a variety of different ways. They had him in some pick-and-pop actions. They have him spacing the floor in the corners. He had one awesome play last weekend against Samford where, you know, because he's a little bit taller, smaller defender on him trying to crowd him and poke the ball away, Got jarred loose a little bit, but he just went right behind his back, got it to his left hand, took one dribble, and pulled it up from three. Like, there's just so much unexplored shot making there. I think the physicality and his movement patterns on the defensive end make him somebody that can guard bigger wings and potentially both the three and the four at the NBA level. He just checks so many boxes for what NBA teams look for, and he's much more advanced and, and polished farther along than I thought he would be. 10 dunks and 19 three-pointers through nine games that he's played this year. Those are really, really high numbers. Uh, he's knocking on the door of being a first-round pick, Sam. I, I had a scout ask me earlier this week, what is the difference between Taylor Hendricks and Brandon Miller? Um, and I thought it was an interesting question. I think Brandon is just a more fluid athlete. I think he plays with more bend. I think that – He's more switchable defensively. I think Hendricks is probably a little bit better of a weak side rim protector. I think that he uses his length on the defensive end in help situations a little bit better. But I think that Miller has a lot more upside as a ball handler yeah. once he gets the footwork stuff down because his body mechanics allow him to play with real bend. And I think it's just more technical stuff that he's working through now. Hendricks plays a little bit more upright and I think he's probably going to be resigned to being more of an off-ball player in the NBA. Now, I think that might also end up being the case with Brandon Miller. 
where he is more of an off-ball player if he can't work through some of the footwork stuff, some of the tightness of handle stuff. But I would take the upside of Brandon Miller still. But I thought it was interesting that that question got posed to me just in terms of scouts will often pose to me these interesting hypotheticals, right? Where one guy is seen as very different than another player, right? In a, in a different tier of prospect um, than a guy that's like in the lottery, right? And make you critically think about what the difference is between the two players. I do think Brandon is a better prospect, but I think that that is an interesting comparison that is worth at least yeah. kind of thinking through, right? Well, well, and it's a testament to how how productive Hendricks has been to start the season and consistent in that regard, that he can go from being a guy that I didn't see mentioned pretty much anywhere coming into this draft cycle as a one-and-done. Like an intriguing prospect with some NBA upside long-term, sure, but one-and-done, I, I wasn't really seeing a lot of that chatter or, or from people that I was talking to yeah. hearing that he was in that range. For him to not only kind of bust through that area this quickly into the season, but then have a, what does he do differently than Brandon Miller? Are we sure that they're not too different in terms of of the types of players that they are? To have that question be popped up is just a testament to how consistent and good Hendricks has been. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, uh, I'll go next with my first one. I'm going Donovan Klingon at Connecticut. I think I might've mentioned, I can't remember if I said this on mic or off mic to you, um, Donovan Klingon is the player that I have been asked most about by NBA scouts, agents, sources throughout the league over the course of the last week. Uh, Klingon is Connecticut's backup center. He is seven foot two, 265 pounds. He has a 14.3% block rate and he just swallows up everything within their zone. They play him in a drop and he's so big that like, he, he made guys like Colin Castleton and like Charles Bidiaco and Musa Cisse just look like small when they were on the court, which is crazy to me. Like he made Nafali Dante look small. Nafali Dante is like 6'11", 7 foot, 270 pounds. Now probably 250, 250 maybe, I guess. And he makes those guys look small. He is so big as an 18 year old seven foot two guy. He just completely swallows them up. He's a really smart, instinctual rim protector. He has very good instincts in drop coverage and the offense is coming. Like he had 21 points and 11 rebounds against LIU Brooklyn today. LIU Brooklyn is one of the worst teams in all of college basketball. He did that in 15 minutes. <laughs> He had 21 and 11 in 15 minutes uh, against Florida. He was also the best player for Connecticut in that game as well against Colin Castleton, another potential, uh, I, I would say two way guy. I, I would say Castleton probably ends up on a two way next year. Really, really good space defender, good post scorer. He dropped 16 points and had eight rebounds in three blocks in 19 minutes. On top of that, I would say he was the driving force more than anything else in terms of why Colin Castleton ended up going four of 14 in that game. And that's a guy that is a potential like all American this year, if things really go right for Florida and SEC play. So I 
I don't know if he is a 2023 guy or a 2024 guy. I think we need to see way more in terms of where his feel is offensively. I think we need to see way more in terms of what he can do offensively outside of score at the basket. But he looks really, really good. And he looks like, like I've had multiple coaches that have watched Connecticut, played Connecticut, tell me like they were a harder problem for us to solve when Klingon was on the court than Adama Sonogo. And that, that's how good he's been. Yeah. And Adama Sonogo is like, again, guy in the mix to be an All-American this year. So, yeah, I, I am a I, – I think we need to start taking Donovan Klingon a little bit more seriously because he has legitimate elite center size, not just like – you know, oh, he's another freshman center who's limited and his drop coverage big, whatever. He's big enough to actually do it at the next level. And believe it or not, he's kind of slimmed down and gotten his conditioning in much better shape from where it was in high school. Like what UConn's strength and conditioning program has done for him is already paying dividends. And, and a lot of credit does belong with, with, with Klingon in that regard. Uh, I had the unique opportunity to watch him play a lot on the AAU circuit. I think it's one of the reasons he was maybe – I don't want to say undervalued as a recruit coming into college, but he played on the hoop group circuit and wasn't necessarily playing against all of these big time sneaker, uh, you know, Nike Adidas under armor competition, every single game that he was playing. And because of that, there wasn't a ton of size that he was going against and almost felt like he was dominating because he was just so much more massive than everybody else. One of the things that I saw from him was smart passing ability when he's doubled, because when you're a bigger guy playing against a ton of smaller players, you're going to get double teamed a lot in the post immediately when you catch the ball. I saw a really nice touch from him around the basket, some polished post moves, and that dominant defense that has clearly translated to, to UConn already. Uh, we, yeah. we wanted to know how would he look physically being able to get up and down the floor at his size to continue to do this at the pace that college basketball is played at. And I think the conditioning that he put in over the summer has helped him get there. The other thing we wanted to see is just, can he do this against other big men? Can he do this consistently on a night-to-night basis? Because he is so big. He is smart with angles. I think he's got great touch near the basket. But the way that UConn is so well-spaced on offense and the way that everybody on the perimeter competes on defense, they funnel everything towards him so he can sit back and protect the rim. And they get him a ton of open dunks near the basket. Uh, that isn't to say that Klingon isn't responsible for his own uh, kind of uprise right now. He's been so, so, so good. But uh, I am I am a huge fan of Klingon long-term. Yeah, and again, like, I'm not sure if he's a 2023 or a 2024. I think it's close. Based. Like, I, it could go either way depending on how the rest of the season goes. But he's someone that scouts are now pretty interested in. And like people are kind of trying to learn as much information as they can get about him because he looks as good as he does uh, at this point. Uh, Okay. You're up next with your second prospect of the week. So I'd mentioned on my first that a huge part of prospect of the week is just picking somebody who uh, has performed well over the last calendar week. And while this prospect hasn't necessarily put the ball in the basket in the way that we would always hope, which I believe he's been either one of 14 or two of 14 from three over that time. 
he has put together a solid enough resume to start the season that we just got to talk about him now because he's one of my favorite guys. It's Tuck DeVries from Drake. Uh, I think he might be, outside of Grady Dick, the best shooter in this draft class. Uh, Really, really smooth. Is able to get his shot off in so many different ways. Off the bounce from deep range. uh, Really good on movement. Smart player. Knows how to leverage angles. And one thing that we've seen from him is he is not afraid to take smaller guys at the college level into the post and kind of bang them around physically into a really smooth-looking fadeaway jumper. I buy the IQ. I buy the feel. I definitely buy the shooting. And we need to see a little bit more on the defensive end of the floor. Like, I do have some concerns that are probably going to prevent him from rising all the way to getting a first-round grade for me just because he's not the greatest athlete, particularly laterally. Uh, but he has size. He's got really good shooting ability, high IQ player. Uh, I, I'm all aboard the Tuck train. I really, really like Tucker DeVries as well. I am a huge, huge fan. I also just have significant athletic questions. He's the best movement shooter in the class. Like, I, I don't even think it's all that close. Like, I, I think he is very clearly the best movement shooter in the class. He can take them off of, like, pick and pops. He'll take them on, like, they run him off of some, like, stagger screen actions where he'll, like, shoot up from underneath the basket. All his momentum going toward the other basket on the other end of the court, he'll turn, stop, catch and shoot all in one motion. That is an exceptionally hard shot. That is an exceptionally hard shot to be able to make. And he can do it. And then like, they'll use him as a trailer in transition where he's shooting from 30 feet. And then they'll use him like as off of a pull up where he's like relocating. Like he'll like catch heavy clothes out. Dribble once, dribble twice, shoot it into the mid-range. Dribble once on a sidestep dribble, shoot from three. He has all of these different little jump shooting tricks of the trade already down. It's no surprise. Like, he's a coach's kid. He's Darren DeVries' son, the head coach at Drake. He has all of these little tools and tricks of the trade that you really look for as a prospect. But what DeVries, I think, really needs to work on is just he needs to get the absolute most out of his body. Like whatever he can do to condition, whatever he can do to add any sort of quickness, explosiveness, twitch. That's it, man. Like that, that's the whole ball game for him. If he can add any of that, like he is more off the bounce than what I think he gets credit for. He is yeah, more as yes. like a passer and like feel than what he gets credit for. Yeah. It, I, was. I think, yeah, go ahead. Now, there's just one play against, I think it was Louisiana, like a week or so ago, where he caught the ball in the left wing and pump faked, got chased off the line. I think he took one dribble to his left and then threw like a left-hand hook pass to a shooter on the right wing. Like, you don't see specialty shooters and guys who are the best movement threats in class do that consistently. Uh, man, he's just, he's a hooper, Sam, and you're right. It, it's yeah. going to come all the way down to the defense. It's what it's going to come down to. Yeah. Okay. Next up, my fourth or my second prospect, the fourth one here, Arthur Kaluma dropped 27 points last night for Creighton against BYU. He was in a zone. He was feeling it. He busted out a sham God in transition. It was unlike anything that I have ever seen Arthur Kaluma do. 
this is the guy that people were excited about, like yeah. as a potential first round pick coming into yeah. the year. Uh, looked a lot like more. Ex- I don't want to say explosive. I don't even know that he's like explosive, but like a lot more fluid, a lot more like twitchy ish kind of, but like six foot seven and you're busting out six foot seven, great low center of gravity. Like you're an explosive athlete with like a seven foot wingspan and you're busting out a sham God in transition. And then like gathering with one hand, like over top of the ball and going underneath for a finger roll and one. And you're just like, who is Arthur Kaluma? Cause the seat, the start of the season has not been great for him. Like, let's just be real about it. He was very disappointing in Maui. NBA scouts that I talked to there came away and were like, look, we know he's kind of coming back from like a knee concern and he maybe didn't have like a full preseason and everything, but he just didn't look impressive. It didn't look like he was thinking through the whole way. It almost looked like he was out there like going for himself a little bit more, but man, looked unbelievable last night looked unbelievable last night against BYU made I think three threes in that game like had a couple of like pump fake drives which Adam go ahead say the number one rule in college basketball stay down on the pump fake especially for Arthur Kaluma because that's the that is Adam's number one cardinal rule this year stay down on Arthur Kaluma's pump fake but if he's going to make threes it becomes harder to do that so I, look, I can't write off Arthur Kaluma as a first round pick at this point just because we're hunting, right? Like we're really searching and he is a six foot seven, 220 pound wing that can do some of the things that we saw last night, right? Uh, anytime that you have that kind of upside, you're going to get looks from the NBA unequivocally. So really, really intriguing really positive signs from Arthur Kaluma last night that were great to see for Creighton. I have always liked him defensively. I think that he has the, the build, the ability to crowd ball handlers without getting beat in straight lines and, and able to slide his feet. Like I think he's going to be a solid defender against pro level wings. It's just all about the offense and the feel for him. Does he shoot the ball consistently? And if he doesn't, does he find ways to impact the game on that side of the floor? I don't see him as a facilitator. You know, I did a, a small uh, thread on Twitter today about a couple of clips from the, from the game last night that just give me maybe some pause about what he's going to be on the offensive end of the floor, particularly that pump fake, Sam. If people aren't biting on it, like it's really hard for him to get separation and get a paint touch. But when he's shooting the ball confidently and it's going in, he's a very, very good two-way player. And I think that he started to pop a little bit more in transition. That's where a couple of the the big energy plays came from him last night, both the sham got finishing. I think he had one at the later part of the first half where he was just able to attack, get downhill and throw down like a thunderous right-handed jam. If he's able to play in the open floor, whether that's because he's a solid defender or he's surrounded by other guys that can defend, rebound and run, he'll be passable on that end of the floor. It's just, it's going to come down to feel and shooting. All right, that's all we got basketball-wise for the day. Cooking with Spins Corner. What did you get into this week, Adam? 
I got into four basketball games and a lot of McDonald's. So <laughs> not not a ton of cooking on my end here. Uh, I think I'm just really looking forward to I always say there's one day every holiday season where, you know, whether it's my wife and I, my family, we just make a ton of Christmas cookies. I think that day is coming here mm. in the next couple because we're in exam mode right now. Uh, might have some freer afternoons in that regard. Like there's just going to be one day where my Twitter feed is an explosion of sugar cookies and this or that. So be on the lookout for that. Love it. That used to be a tradition with my mother and I, when I lived in Pittsburgh, um, she still makes a ton of Christmas cookies every year. Um, So yeah, that's gotta be like an Italian family thing, right? Probably so. Uh, I think it is. Yeah. 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 Cause there's like the, isn't the, isn't like cookie table, like an Italian family tradition at a wedding. Well, cookie tables, it's a definite Pittsburgh tradition, which is one that, that we borrowed and, and took for our wedding. Uh, so we, we did have a cookie table at the Spinella wedding. I love it. Uh, okay. Movie Corner with Sam. I watched two, or I guess I've watched three 2022s uh, over the course of the last week. Watched Emily the Criminal, which is Aubrey Plaza's new movie where she is like a student debt riddled 30 year old, 29 year old, something like that, who goes to a life of crime to try and make money. Interesting movie. She's great in it. Aubrey Plaza is terrific, but I didn't totally vibe with me. I saw Amsterdam, which is the most disappointing movie of the year. Uh, it has listen to this cast. You will, you will know who all of these people are. Okay. Christian Bale, Margot Robbie, John David Washington, Mike Myers, Michael Shannon, Zoe Saldana. Um, I don't know if you know who Matthias Schoenarts is, but he's in it. Um, Alessandro Nivola. Uh, let's see, it's nine. There were like 15 of them. Taylor Swift is in it. Oh. Um, let's see who else. Chris Rock is in it. Uh, it's just Anya Taylor-Joy is in it. Rami Malek is in it. That's 13. Like we're, we're just like listing down just like a who's who of great actors in 2022. And this movie was a mess. Like David O. Russell thought that the material was way more interesting than it was. He told it in the most convoluted, like non-creative, creative way that he could have possibly done it. He chose like style over telling an interesting story at every turn and I think that overall the script was just a nightmare. Um, and yeah, it was disappointing. Maybe the most disappointing movie of the year when you have that kind of cast. And then also saw a decision to leave, which is Park Chan-wook's new movie. And that movie is just absolutely a gut punch and is amazing. And I would recommend everyone go to Mubi. Mubi, I know you sponsor podcasts. Please, by all means, Come to my people at The Athletic. I will 100% sponsor Mubi uh, as a platform. I love your platform. Uh, Decision to Leave is on Mubi now, uh, M-U-B-I. And you can get, a, I think, a 10-day trial or something like that in order to watch it. But it is awesome. It is so, so good. All of his movies are so creative and it's just like a, almost like a murder mystery, romantic thriller kind of thing. And it's just amazing. And I would wholly recommend watching it from anyone. 
I think that if I'm going to take one recommend recommendation from you, it's to watch that instead of Amsterdam. I think I'm going to, I'm going to hop yeah. on that one. Do not, do not uh, waste your time with Amsterdam. Amsterdam's like two hours and 20 minutes to it's like, what are we doing here, guys? Like this yeah. movie is not two hours and 20 minutes of material. It's not like, I even thought the decision to leave was probably like 10 minutes too long. Cause Park Chan-wook for people who, watch Park Chan-wook movies, he tends to do these elongated, long first acts that like kind of really throw you into the world and throw you in with the characters. Um, This one was even a bit long by his standards, I thought. Um, But yeah, we need to edit down movies. I know that, you know, Park Chan-wook and David O. Russell, David O. Russell seems like a not great person given all the reporting out there, but like, David O. Russell and Park Chan-wook are like two of the great auteurs of the last 20 years. But like, let's, let's condense these just a little bit, just small amount. It's all I'm asking. <laughs> Don't think that's unreasonable, Sam. Adam, tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people what's going on in your life. Just let loose. This is your time. Oh, my time. Well, Sam, thank you. It's always a pleasure being here and just talking hoops with you. Uh, if anyone wants to find any of my work, find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore. YouTube is just my name, Adam Spinella. And then our Substack, the box and one dot substack dot com. Uh, do a weekly NBA article there. Write some stuff for SB Nation on the national uh, NBA coverage side in that regard. And I've previewed this for the last couple of weeks the first video comes out tomorrow we're diving into the top 25 prospects that i've scouted uh, in my time doing this since since 2018 really fun series to put together i think the final video when it's all said and done is going to be like an hour and 25 minutes so uh if anyone ever watches that like i'm sorry you're crazy don't do it but uh it's kind of fun series to kind of release in segments and parts here and been a, a dive into the past that I've learned a lot from. So uh, always recommend people learning from their own mistakes, as, as I have certainly made plenty of them. But uh, trying to just be better here for this 2023 draft cycle and make sure we don't mess up with who we get third overall on our boards like we talked about tonight. <laughs> Adam, don't don't diminish your work. This is going to be a great video. Go watch an hour and 25 of Spins' work over on Adam Spinella's YouTube channel named Adam Spinella. Uh, Yeah, I'm still working on draft guide stuff. I don't know if you'll get anything from me in terms of new content at The Athletic uh, this week, but uh, I will have podcasts. I will have Schindler on on Tuesday going into Wednesday. I have another guest scheduled already for Thursday and Friday. I'm ahead of the game this week, so I'm excited. Keep it locked here. Go subscribe over on Apple Podcasts. Hit that follow button. Go subscribe on Spotify. And as always, go subscribe to the Game Theory Podcast with Sam Vicini channel over on YouTube. That's all I've got, though. Until next time, we will talk soon. Bye.